0: Welcome to Mod Pod, the Museum of Dance podcast, where we explore why we dance. I'm your host, Jamie Ray Wright. Today, we are visiting with an artist with decades of experience making work in the San Francisco Bay Area and beyond. This artist has created every kind of dance work, from proscenium to site specific, always on a shoestring. This artist has also danced with some of the most influential companies of the second wave of the San Francisco Contemporary Dancing. Join me as we welcome Liz Roman. Hello, Liz. Hey, Jamie. Thank you very much for talking to us today. It's great being here. So often when I talk to folks on this podcast, the very first thing that I try to find out and what our listeners are really interested in is how they found dance or how dance found them.
1: Uh Ah, well... In 1963, in the Midwest, where I grew up in Illinois, the public schools decided not to have kindergarten classes. So my mother, with seven kids, four under the age of five, two sisters couldn't go to kindergarten. So my mother said, well, I've got two five-year-old twins and their three-year-old sister. And if I can't put them in kindergarten, what kind of you know, activity are they going to do? They were girls and there wasn't as much sports for girls. So my mother decided to put my two sisters into a ballet school. They were five going on six and there was two of them. And then somewhere in that decision-making process, uh, a three-for-one happened. And I went in the door with them. And so uh, at age three, I went into my first ballet class and I stayed there for good.
0: Wow. Age three. thats great. I was three.
1: I thought I was four most of the years growing up because I have a lot of funny stories. When my mother one day turned to me and said, oh, honey, you were three.
0: <laughs> so I was three. Well, I mean, first of all, you're born in a league. You have twin sisters. My goodness. Yeah,
1: they're uh, two years older than me. They're twins. Yep. They live in the Midwest. And they we, dance as well.
0: Where in the Midwest were you?
1: I grew up in a place called Rockford, Illinois. It was okay. on the border of Wisconsin, Illinois. So it borders a town called Beloit. There's actually a lot of artists out in the Bay Area here who came out of Beloit College which was a lovely art school, and so that's where I went. That's where I grew up, and then I went to school in St. Louis and in Chicago.
0: So, is this a, a sort of a suburban kind of atmosphere, or more rural? What, what kind? No, of?
1: Well, it was a town. It was a, it was the um, second largest city in Illinois at the time. Chicago being the biggest, then Rockford came after that. Now, um, it's probably maybe about the fifth or sixth biggest. It hasn't grown as much. It was an industrial town. Lots of folks came from, out, you know, from bigger areas and from down south um, and came up. And so there was a lot of industry, Ingersoll Rand. And so it was a very, you know, upbeat place. Um, you know, I was a kid. I left there when I turned 18. So my memories are oftentimes, you know, based on my younger years. But it was a really fun place. There were a lot of arts. I grew up, like I say, going to this dance school. It was a good dance school, um, but I did leave it at some point and um did go study in somebody's garage <laughs> where my sister couldn't take class because in point shoes she was too tall for the ceiling. And so I left very good training and for a while trained for a couple of years with somebody who just had me dance all over the place, which I think in some ways really created me this love of just entertaining people.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So about how long were you at this school? Maybe a couple of years or?
1: Uh, I started, I trained my whole, I started when I was three, I always trained. I always trained all the way through high school, all the way into college. I didn't quit training and dance until I was about 20. And um, I moved, I was in a theater school in Chicago, the Goodman School of Drama. And so to, at that point I decided to stop dancing. I worked and I went to school full time. And for about a year and a half, I actually didn't dance. And then eventually I walked back into a dance studio and then I never stopped dancing again after that. So I definitely had a period in my early 20s where, you know, I felt like I had to start thinking about what I was going to do with my life. And I didn't see dance at that moment as serving me. So I had moved more into theater. I was also a singer and a musician. So people had said, you should go that direction. There'll be more work for you that way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I didn't actually enjoy that at all.
0: So I, I'm trying to fill in the gaps between 3 and 18 to see just just what kinds of, you know.
1: You well, well, I did ballet. So from 3 until 18, I studied primarily ballet. But being in the Midwest at that time, um, musicals were, you know, kind of what you, you saw yourself as growing up and maybe going on and dancing in musicals in New York or something. And so a lot of what you did was as you got into high school, you were in all these different musicals. And so I was in all the musicals at my high school. There were also an outside, uh, the public schools lost their arts program. So they started their own arts program outside of the schools. So I was in those shows as well. There were a lot of folks at that time in my generation who went on then to go dance in Broadway um, and to be in movies and television and stuff actually that were my age. And so it was a very talented group of people that went along. And so there was a lot of opportunity for me to do, you know, a little bit of local television, commercial work. I ended up doing dinner theater work nightclub work so I was always able to make a little bit of a living and uh, going at, eight, eight, at age 18 instead of going to a straight dance school I went into a theater school because again it was looked at as being a smarter move for somebody who also um, had the singing talent that I had and so I was in a musical theater program in St. Louis Missouri at a school that's now called Webster University back then it was called Webster College and it was the first year that they had a special musical theater program so they chose six people from around the country Um, three women and three men to be in this program. And I was one of those six people. Um, I did that program and it really wasn't what I wanted. Being a dancer, I kept wanting to have more dance in my life. And so I went to straight theater after that. And that led me to Chicago, Illinois, where I went to the Goodman School of Drama, which was a straight theater program. And once again there, I enjoyed everything about theater, doing the technical work, helping assistant direct, doing all the things you do in that kind of conservatory, but I missed dance. And so I left that school and just went and got my BA in psychology at DePaul University and went back to dancing. That's simply what I did. And from then on, I wasn't sure uh, what I was going to do with that because I had started a career um, wanting to work in psychology. So I came to San Francisco, the Bay Area in 1984 to go to John F. Kennedy University, a PhD program in psychology. I came and did a year of that, and I danced. When I wasn't in school, I danced, and I worked full-time at a place called Burt Center with autistic kids, and in that process, I think I made the decision eventually to leave that school at the end of the year because I realized I just wanted to dance. When I got here, a lot of people asked me to dance in their small companies, and so I did, but when I got here, Jamie, I was inundated with a lot more modern dance than I had really experienced in the Midwest in those first like 18 to you know 24 years so when I got here I was really I was like a kid in a candy shop and I as I danced for lots of other people I realized that possibly what happened for me as an artist was that I wanted to make my own art that I didn't want to be in uh, musicals that had been going on for years and been redone over and over again that I actually wanted to be in new things and so I had kind of hoped that in dance, there would be this different kind of dance that would develop. And of course, during this time, all this hip hop is developing, right? <laughs> I'm just in the wrong segment of dance. And so dance is really blowing up around me. And so somewhere along the way, I think I just said, you know, go to work and dance and just figure out how to make a dance. And you can go make those dances that you that you see in your head. And so that's been like a journey that I've been on for the last 30 plus years, most of which was just taking classes in San Francisco, but I did go and have a stint at Mills College for one year where I went to a graduate dance program for a year and took their um, composition classes because I understood that there was something I needed to understand about composition um, that I had not learned in all those theater schools I was in. So hence that that kind of disconnect. The theater schools taught me about directing and all these different things and I did crews, but I never then took the kind of composition classes you would get in a dance program. So I did it at graduate school. And that kind of got me making dances in the early 90s.
0: So tell me a little bit about some of the people you worked with in the uh, in the 80s when you were going back. Well, when that.
1: I first came here, I danced. Oh, my gosh. I was in every, all kinds of classes. Well, the first one of the first classes I ended up taking with would have been Cosmuda. That was Pacific Ballet. And Suzanne Allelu, Alleluia was there with her as well. And I can't remember some of the other teachers, but there were a few other teachers. And I ended up there because I met someone who taught at USF. She was a a dance teacher there. And she said, this is where you should take ballet. From there, I heard about um, Alonzo King and he was at the um, academy. And so I started stepping into the academy of dance where he taught every now and then taking classes there. And then in the modern dance world, I was going to a place called Dancer's Group Footwork where um, Tina Masaka and Cheryl Chaddock, or Cheryl Chaddock as she was called, They taught uh, kind of a more of a Limon modern. Um, I also took from many other people, uh, gosh, Jan Van Dyke. And I can't remember all the names of all the different people that I took from Karen Steele. There were so many, uh, eventually Joe Good, um, studied quite a bit with him. So there was just a lot of modern dance happening. The people that I danced for, I did a little bit of dancing for, well, I danced for Cheryl on and off. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other people's names that I dance for. I can't even remember people's names anymore. It's been so long. Yeah. That's the one I can remember the most is Cheryl Chaddock. I did her company. And then from that, I started making my own work in my late twenties, but I didn't really think I knew what I was doing. Um, and so I kind of pulled back and started looking for maybe a little more instruction started working a little bit with some friends who did contact improv And some friends who were starting to do choreography themselves, not names that would make any, you know, make much of a difference. I've said it here, but those people. And during that journey is when I realized um, if I was able to go and train with somebody who was teaching people how to choreograph that I would better know what I was doing. So that was my first step was to take a Joe Good workshop, which was three weeks long. And um, that was a very informative workshop. But I hurt my back at the end of it. And so it took me a little while to recover from the back injury I got. But at, at the end of that, then what I understood I needed to do was to pursue just going over to Mills just for a little while and taking some of those classes. I looked at the different universities in the Bay Area. And so that's how I decided to do that. So then I danced. During that time, I danced for Janice Garrett, I'm trying to think. I did a little bit of dancing for myself. But those would be the main names people would know would be Cheryl Chaddock and then Janice Garrett. And then, you know, later on, way down the line, I played with uh, Nita Little, who does contact improv and work with a group that she had that would do improv performances. But mostly my performing was not so much about performing. Mostly I was out here because I always wanted to make dance. So I was just always waiting till I was old enough to maybe command an audience of dancers and to kind of know what to do to be more in charge. And so that was kind of the waiting game starting at about 30, 31 um, and so by my early 30s, um, I did a, the pilot program at ODC after I got out of graduate uh, year of graduate school. I did the pilot program and produced a very small dance and did, a, did another program with them. And then I would take my work and show it at what's called the local, which was the dancers group footwork. When it was on 22nd and Mission, their theater. And I would go there and I would show my work there. I think I might've shown it a few other places too. I can't even remember the different showcases that were available back then. You know, field work was around and they were training people. Um, the pilot program had migrations, it had flight. So there were a lot of programs that were trying to um, support emerging artists. And so I kind of slid in through all of that. But I also too, then during all that, Jamie, I don't know that people would know this about me, but I worked at for ODC theater. I, during that time, I started volunteering for them I'm doing work for them in their office. And then I eventually was hired on to be one of their house managers. And then eventually I just ran all their house management and their box office and everything. And then eventually for a period of about a year, I was the artistic director of ODC theater. And that was my, my that was my stint doing, uh at, you know, theater admin. And so during that time, I learned a lot about running my own dance company, just running a theater, running a studio. I even ran a small studio at 34, 35 Cesar Chavez building um, somewhere in the two thousands, probably like around 2003 or four with Cheryl Chaddock and Chris Black. Oh, I danced for another another company I danced for. I remember it was Zibi. That was a wonderful young company that came up, came here. And uh, they were much younger than I was, but they did the really fun work and I danced for them doing a piece. A monk piece,
0: actually, it was really cool. So, I mean, some of these places that you mentioned are no longer around. Uh,
1: yeah, right, right.
0: <laughs> yes, I'm old. Well, you know, I'm right there with you. I know. You know, we we uh, probably went through some of the same kinds of things. I remember doing pilot and yeah, you know, and in small venues around the city, and they're like. Remember uh, Brady
1: Street? Brady Street. I was at Brady Street when Alonzo and Pam Hagen took over Brady Street. I was one of the last shows there in 1999. I did a show, Always Falling. They allowed me to store a big, huge staircase that we would build for every rehearsal. And they let me store it in there and paint the walls and turn the um, back wall into a film screen and project films. And that was in 1999, and that's before that closed down. And then that became, I think, like a Kinko's Coffee Shop or something. So yeah, many spaces have come and gone. That had been a very big, that Brady Street had been a very strong training studio. Yehuda Mayor had been the uh, dance master there for years.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember Brady Street very well. Yeah, it's, like I said, it's a shame with all these places uh, have gone away, but you know, we keep plugging away here in the Bay Area too. Yeah, like,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Even Dancers Group Footwork, I remember, you know, working up there and, um, you know, that was a lovely performance space. Um, they had their little loft studio upstairs and it was, you know, It was one of those spaces that was really near the end when uh, before they were gone. I know I can remember them offering me to allow me to go and do like a four week run of a show. And so being a smaller space, it was offering that kind of support so that I really was, uh, you know, those kind of spaces. Really, they are a lot about what build artists. Now, when I mentor younger artists, I often have to tell them that, you know, they have to let me know what are some of the newer things that people are creating for artists um, as they emerge, because it's continued to be a field that people always are drawn to. You know, younger artists looking for people to mentor them to become more, you know, successful artists.
0: So, so many people uh, find their way into modern dance because they are uh, rebelling against ballet. But it seems like you found your way in just sort of organically.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, I didn't grow up with enough modern dance to make me really like it. And what I did of it in the, this would have been in the 1970s. So it would have been like maybe 1973 till maybe like about 19, you know, uh, in, in Illinois, about like 78. That kind of, I did dabbled in and out of modern. There was such a stronger pull for jazz and um, theater dancing, musical theater dancing. That was more the pull. And so when I kind of moved out into bigger dance in Chicago, studying with Joel Hall there, you know, he was the jazz that he was doing was jazz that was coming out of like, you know, people were coming back from like dance theater, Harlem, um, Elvin Alien stuff. And so even in when I was in Chicago, I was still primarily studying forms of jazz and then taking ballet. The little bit of modern I did was funny enough, was with a woman who taught like in a broom closet. I'm not lying. It was in a broom closet at a big dance studio. She had this small little closet that we were given that was big enough to go in and do a dance workshop with four people. And that's kind of how low, how low rent the modern was that I was kind of aware of when I was in Chicago. So when I got here in San Francisco, there was a lot of modern, but I mostly was doing ballet because that's what I had grown up doing. I danced in a ballet company in my teen years. And so it was what I knew and I loved it. And I was also just a very physical athletic person. So it was just part of my athleticism. So when I started taking all these different modern classes, it was really funny, Jamie, because I would be in a modern class, even sometimes a jazz class when I came out here, we'd be dancing and all of a sudden the whole class would be in a wide second position, swinging from side to side, and the whole class would be facing me <laughs> because I, didn't, I literally didn't know the, the, that, that jazz technique and somehow they'd all turned one way and I'd not turned that way and I'd be facing everybody. Or a lot of the modern that I would take, they would change, their it was very directionally changing but but i hadn't taken that much modern to have that experience so i think i held on to my ballet roots because it really gave me a lot of joy and somewhere in all of that i was able to experience maybe some you know some contact some improvisational dance and i started thinking about the theater dance that i had grown not to like cuz as i got older i didn't like theater dance i thought why don't i like it and i thought well cuz they're always doing these oh we're going to do all the choreography from the original you know library dance from music man and my thing was, can we just do some new stuff? Let's do some new stuff. And I could see a lot of people around me in ballet, and they were starting to expand what ballet was. I started, you know, seeing a little bit of Bhutto dance around me. And I started realizing people are expanding and making different things. So in modern, I started noticing people who were breaking their rules and kind of doing their own thing. I'd seen a little bit of that in the 70s, but I didn't know what it was. I was in an undergrad at a school in St. Louis and a grad student and her husband he was a music student and she was a dance student they were doing a project together and she was dancing around just jumping around she's a skinny little thing and she's just jumping around and he was just banging on a drum kit and it was just kind of i was like that's just kind of goofy and funny and and there, i'd never seen people and they loved what they were doing and i remember thinking i like that but that was 1978 so years later as i'm in san francisco and i'm starting to see more alternative a lot more alternative dance i started thinking you know liz the idea of what art is is really just the idea someone has and then they make art you don't really have to know other people's ideas you don't have to understand their ideas and understand their process to the point of execution you just have to understand how one goes about making art and then you have to learn that about yourself and so that's kind of the way that i the way i look at it and so I did actually, Jamie, just kind of fall into modern that way. I I don't want to say this because this may offend people, but I wasn't good. I was a serviceable ballet dancer and I knew that about myself. And I always knew as a dancer, I was never the best person in the room, but I always wanted to be in the room like a lot. And I knew that that wanting to be in that room and wanting to stay in that room and dance was going to be important, but that always wanting to be the best person in that room was at some point not going to serve who I was as an artist. And so I had to kind of learn to have kind of like a, a a stamina to stay when other people got disappointed when they got injured when they didn't get jobs when all those things happened I'd be like but I'm gonna get up tomorrow and I'm gonna go today I'm gonna go to class and I get up and I go to class and then somebody would say to me hey do you want to dance with my company and then I'd find out the company was me and the and that person you know I'd go and I'd do that work and each experience I had, you know, put me in front of people who had a little bit more structure in their arts. And so I got to dance for people like Cheryl Chaddock and Janice Garrett, who were much more compassed artists who were on their way and had developed. And so I learned from them as well as, you know, other artists whose work that I went to see. But definitely modern dance. And, and I think modern dance continues to be this really amazing, evolving art form. Even today, I tell dancers when they take my class on Saturday mornings that I'm history. When you come take dance class from me, I'm often teaching from this very historical perspective. I've taken other people's techniques that were, you know, maybe introduced into the world maybe 60, 70 years ago. Now I'm teaching them more relevantly the way that they helped me in the last 30 years. And so I'm often saying to people, this is history. You know, this is from Cunningham. But I'll talk about why I do what I do differently. And So I think it's been it's been a really... Modern dance was, was a very big, huge field for a young girl coming from a very big family. I came from a very large family. We had foster kids. We had everything. And so I grew up in a lot of chaos. And so when the modern world, dance world was so open and there was so much going on, I think I stepped into all that chaos and said, oh, I can make some order out of this.
0: Well, I mean, that, that seems to be a, a difficult or a different kind of a journey into a, into a modern dance uh, aesthetic. Uh, Do you make a distinction between modern and contemporary and looking at what's going on now?
1: Yes, yes, I do. But I don't think that my opinion really matters that much. But if somebody were to care what I would say, what I'd say is that contemporary, the way that I would have seen it, you know, 35 years ago, when I came here, and modern were, they were different. They were very different. Somewhere in the 90s, when you started having much stronger release technique, in the Bay Area, you really started seeing people, this, a distinction between contemporary and the other direction that, that modern was going into kind of more released modern. And those those got much stronger. Now I tend to see, 30 years on, I tend to see that development, that, that there's been a stronger bellic voice in contemporary in the last at least what I feel that there is such a strong training programs in the Bay Area that there's been a very strong technical bellic voice into the contemporary world that is different than the contemporary that I was. What Not different, but the spirit of it is different because what has passed in dance history in the past 30 years in doing the type of work that I do that's very much based on more very trained people, but trying to take pedestrian movement and make it feel smooth like dance. And so somewhere in that development, contemporary now is um, a very different form than it was 30 years ago. And that's what that's what art does. It shifts. And 30 years from now, there could be somebody talking about the other, you know, that contemporary took another swing. Somebody was recently talking about Janice Garrett, who's a, an amazing choreographer, contemporary choreographer. And they were just talking about even just the work that she does and that she holds a very special place in the work that she produces as a contemporary artist and um you know so younger artists now are having to come in and and they're going to show us what what their interpretation of that is and, and isn't that what we should isn't that what art is about so that's why i say my opinion doesn't matter because i've seen these changes and i've seen you know people there used to be a time in San Francisco where it was a little bit in my modern dance world where a lot of people didn't train as much. And people would always say to me, when I first started making work in the 90s, they'd say, you know, modern dancers in San Francisco take like rhythm and motion dance classes. And I said, well, a lot of them teach those classes for money. But there were people who were kind of more cross-training and doing other things. And so I think that 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 change d- did indeed happen. And back then, people didn't train as much, but I but I see then... That that there was a a, a difference happened there that people started you know again training more and those certain levels of who's a contemporary the major contemporary teachers are going to affect where people go for their other training. If you're in a contemporary dance class, are you going to take on your day that that teacher doesn't teach a a a release modern class or are you going to go take a ballet class? What's going to serve you better? I was the type of person that would take the release modern class, take the contemporary class, and take the ballet class. But that's because I wanted to be able to speak to all those languages and all those different types of dancers.
0: Was there a mindset that training would diminish your artistry in some way? I mean, what, what was driving? Them? And I, 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 I don't remember know, that. I don't
1: know. You know, I don't know. I, I, it's funny. I stayed away from, a, I, I'm a very unclicky person. I kind of stay to myself. I can move in large groups of people and feel like I belong. Hence <laughs> my childhood. And so I don't know. I would think possibly that some of the things were, I can tell you things I heard over the times, because I was a teacher during that time, I would hear people's, you know, hypothesis about why people did or didn't take class. I never required my dance company to take my class. Here's why. When I danced for other people, when I came out here in the eighties and I danced, it was very clicky. If you dance for somebody, you were supposed to take their class. Now I happen to have this thing called a full-time job. I worked in the mental health services. I worked with kids. I worked at halfway houses. I worked for Larkin Street Youth Services. I worked jobs. So I had to take take class when I could. And so I was oftentimes a little penalized by the people I danced for because they would be mad that I didn't take their classes. And so at some point, what I would say to them is that if you're asking me to dance for you, then you think I'm a good enough dancer to dance for you. Then I think that you trust my choosing who I train with but that always seemed to really have a bit of a drag. So when I became a choreographer, I did not require people to take my classes. I was like, let them go take the classes they wanna take, you'll have a different variety of dancer. So there was a little bit of a um, a clickiness and a loyalty that was, that was kind of required there. And because I couldn't do that, I worked shift work where I'd sleep over sometimes two to three nights at, at an institution and not get paid a lot of money, mind you. And so I could only take class in certain days. So I kind of formed this way of being very independent um, from all of that. And I've always just done what I wanted to class-wise and have always done that with my dance company as well. But I'm also, too, in the dances, I'm looking for people to inter- people's interpretation of what I'm creating. And so that works for me. If you're teaching really deeply technical work that has to be very precision, then you do need to have your people in your class understanding how you want that to be you know, executed. So I think I just had freedom with that. but But there was... Some of the things that came about were that people were rebelling was that people were saying, you know, I don't want to to train that way. I want to, I'm taking this class over here that lets me explore moving without being told what to do. Therefore, I don't want to go in this class that tells me what to do. I saw all that happening, Jamie, and maybe it was my age. I was around 30 years old and I was 30 years old in 1990. And so as all that was happening, I was also maturing in the world. I had a kid and I had to keep finding work for myself. I made career changes and stuff. So all that was happening at the same time. And so all decisions I made as an artist, I made the same kind of decisions as a human being. And so I didn't feel like there was going to be, that I had to be controlled by the art that was around me. I'm a bit rebellious, one might say. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. It sounds like it, but it sounds like that you're you're finding a way to to create your palette of of colors that you are using in order to create your work?
1: Well, I think that I want to see the work I make. I had very dear friends early on who um, we would talk about making work and, and they would say to me, well, you know, I, I don't care what the audience thinks Liz. And I'd say, really, then do you think that's why there were six people in the audience? Cause, cause I'd be like, cause I don't understand. You had a lot of people on stage and there were six people in the audience. and, 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 I, and I'd, I'd be like, so, but I, that's kind of sad. And that's kind of sad for those performers. So, so early on, I had to really learn from a lot of people around me. And then I'd be like, well, I really do care what the audience thinks. In fact, I care so much about what the audience thinks. I want the audience to have as much fun seeing this dance as I have making it. That's what I cared about. I didn't care what the audience thought about me or like how like well-known it was or anything like that. I wanted when an audience came and engaged in my work, I wanted them to go away with like, well, what the heck? Like, thank you. Like, what was that? I wanted people to like, be like, I wanted to give them something different, a different way of of seeing kind of how I saw art in my mind. And I see art in my mind. I often say that I see art as if you were to stop sound in the world right now, wherever you were, and just put music on and just get a couple of people and sit down and just watch everything happening around you. That's the beginning of art for me. So when I'm making a dance, I just start with, this is where I'm at. And if people were to be moving in this in this palette, on this block, in this building, in this street, what would they be doing? That's the beginning of art for me. And so it doesn't come with it doesn't come with a lot of requirements, but that people want to move, that people love to move and have their relationship to music. So my musicians are the same. I want them to come in and I want them to see, hear, and feel the environment we're in as well. Um, I do not do a lot of, I don't tell people what to do. I direct deeply, but I don't tell people what to do. I often tell people, if I have to tell you what to do, then can I give you a call when I don't know what step to put in there? I'm joking, of course, but I'd say to people, you're you're a composer. I want you to see what I'm working on, talking about how I work. And then I want you to make your music to go with my dance. And so I get to have this really fun relationship with each artist that I work with that we find out how we vibe together. And so I've, I've almost always got my, my cohort of uh, collaborators who are super important to me. I don't consider them outside of Liz Roman and Dancers. When I collaborate with people, I consider that like, that's what I'm doing. Liz Roman and Dancers is collaborating with that person. And that's just like, that's so much fun. So I think that that, that openness allows me to do that.
0: Well, I mean, you successfully do this, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. This is about the audience. I, I I know some of the people that you mentioned who said they don't care uh what the audience thinks. And I again I, I'm not gonna name any names here, but I people have literally told me that from our circle of dance uh cohorts. And there are other folks who are not part of our dance world or part of the uh musical theater world or have been who say, Well, you're just doing Stuff that nobody wants to see.
1: Yeah. Well, that doesn't it come down. To the, the, you know, Jamie, doesn't it come down to that sometimes? That challenge is there, isn't it? Yeah. You know, so it's like, I think it's funny that uh, 300 people twice tromped through my house in the sunset to see dances in, in my house. And one of the most asked questions people had was, where's your stuff? And I probably, probably a third of those people going to the show came because they heard from people that she's got no stuff like she has an empty house. And what people heard from was that that's my house. I don't have any stuff. <laughs> I'm like, I don't have any stuff. I, I'm an artist. I've been using every resource I can. And so, so I just, but people, people came out, so they came out and and what they saw they loved. They're like, I love it. Like how like, do you think to do that? And I'm like going, well, I don't got a lot of stuff in my house and I'm always looking around my house thinking about what if I made a dance in my house and then one day I made a dance in my house. And so I think there's this this way in which, you know, there's this freedom to I I guess maybe I I I trust myself to um, play in my field of art enough that I'm going to engage an audience in a way that every audience member is gonna find something. One of my favorite things to explain to every music group I've worked with is that I have live music because sometimes people come to modern dance and they don't like modern dance. Uh, modern dance doesn't have the greatest reputation, actually, a lot of times as being that entertaining, which is sad. And so that one of the things I do is just to give people a safety blanket, is I, um, I have a live band. And so during the middle of it, and the band is always right there with the dance. I always put it front and center. It's usually got one audience spot. And so that if the audience wants, they can actually enjoy having a live music show because that live music plays the whole time. And because I, but that oftentimes is a way into people's dance hearts, understanding that part of what my dancers are doing is they're relating to that band that's playing that music the same way you're listening to that band. They are too. They're actually dancing to what they're listening to. And if you looked over at me dream one of my dances, I'm probably dancing around a little bit too. I just find this infectiousness of when I hear dance and I see people and I see space open that I see dance. Uh, after I hurt my back in the early nineties, I went to a Deborah Hay performance at dancers group and um, I had no idea what it was going to be. And I took a young dancer with me who had been babysitting my son actually for helping babysit my son. And she went with me to this performance and I wasn't in the greatest of shape, but um, I'd heard about it and I wanted to go. And, um, and there was maybe a handful of dancers there. And it was a lot of the healing, a lot of the um, HIV and AIDS community healing community was there. And so a lot of caregivers, nurses, and um, people had worked in the healing community. And so we got up and Deborah turns on the music and the performance of course is the audience. We're in a circle. And the audience goes in and dances. And I, to this day, it's like an acid flashback for me. I can remember so many things in there. I can remember riding on people. <laughs> I can remember people spinning me around the floor from my foot and then launching me into the air and flying. And it was just like this amazing free for all of a handful of dancers, mostly just people who were in this healing place. And it was, it was incredible. And I remember I walked away from that and I was like, whoa, you know, like, that was, that was incredible. And all she did was turn on music for two hours and we were the performance. And so that deeply affected me. And I think that how, how that music, how the sound, how that soundtrack affected everything. I think, I think they took that with me. And I hadn't even thought about that until we were talking just today during this interview, how deeply that affected me. I think I really, for whatever reason, improvisational things don't scare me. And I think improv can scare people, Jamie. And so maybe a little bit of what a gift I had was that so much of being in a very large group of people growing up and not having a lot of attention and stuff like that and kind of doing what I want, it made me a little bit more gutsy, a little bit more rebellious, but it also made me just, I i don't see risk the same as other people do. I see trying things as being really kind of exciting.
0: Well, that's that's very different from, I mean you train in ballet for so long. Yeah, that, that risk taking has to be trained into people.
1: Yes. There was a man named John Weaver. He danced, he was a dancer, an amazing dancer. He danced for uh, Margie Jenkins while it's here. He also did his own work. And he once I was talking with him about doing handstands, and he had said to me that he said, you know, Liz, when you become an adult after 18 years old, he said, you know, you need to go upside down every day of your life, he goes, because what happens is we become very upright in our young adulthood and people quit going upside down and quit playing like kids do, you know, doing somersaults and these things. Of course, I was doing yoga, so I never quit doing that stuff. So I understood what he meant, but it but it made me realize that there was a whole skill set of things that I wasn't doing when I was in dance classes that, that weren't in dance for me. And so that was an interesting journey. So I would do things like take all the cushions of my couch and put them in a hallway and then run down a hallway and try to flip over them. <laughs> just 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 to try to do something. Or I would, you know, I started hanging pull-up bars all over my house and started hanging and swinging around from things. I just found that I wanted more input in the world around me, that there was such a bigger world of movement out there. In San Francisco, at this dance community here, if you want that, this dance community is so great for that. I want to give a huge shout-out. To the contact improv community around here and it was a deep deep place of learning for me deep deep place of learning
0: well contact improv is certainly i mean that is their raison d'être, really
1: yeah I, you know it is kim epifano and kathleen Hermsdorf. bless mm-hmm. kathleen who passed yeah amazing 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 leader in the dance community they taught a class called uh, was women dancing with women. It had been it had been modeled after a couple of different classes in the nineties where they would have two women teaching kind of contact partnering uh, and women would take this class. And so I can't remember when I jumped in but I jumped in pretty early on and it shifted into uh, more of a contact class. And, and ODC said, hey, you know maybe we'll just start having this contact class come around after you teach on Saturday mornings, Liz, at that point, I'd moved from an early morning Saturday class to being kind of the main technique class. And I've taught a release-based technique class on Saturdays from 10 to 12. And so after my class, they had these contact classes come in. And so I started staying and I would offer to my dance, my dancers, to stay, and I would pay for them to stay. They would stay. I wouldn't require them to. And I'd say, but if you want to stay. And my dancers found that if they took those classes, that they, they were learning new skill sets. But I found that it really, it really allowed me then to kind of open up a whole part of my uh, training and my my artistry. And so that class, those started like in the two thousands, and I did um vexations, which was Kirsten Chrismall did this, and it was done at ODC Theater, and that's where you perform for like I think eight it was 18 hours. You played vexations, you get played the piano and it was a small group of contact improvers and they let me be a part of it. And we performed and we did this performance that started in the afternoon and went until like early, early the next morning and nobody stopped. People slept on stage. They made sushi on stage and different pianists just kept getting up and playing the piano. I'm always bummed because I wasn't playing piano then. I wish I had been, because I could have actually been one of the pianists. I back to playing piano now, but during those lost years when I didn't play the piano, but I actually improvised during that performance, which was uh, it was a real experience because it was uh, literally people dancing for 17, 18 hours straight.
0: Well, it sounds like sort of an aesthetic dance kind of uh, experience.
1: You know, it really was. And it was there was a really a group of really, really cool improvers, contact improver folks who I really had such a respect for all these guys. And so I was just like in awe to be able to go in and dance with them. It had its, you know, As any, as any dancer who grew up deeply in a form and having grown up deeply in the form of ballet, all of the forms of dance have been really interesting for me because they've um, allowed me to find another part of myself. But I've also found that I've been challenged by having been so deeply informed. I take, uh, been taking, uh, hip hop. I don't even know how long now, probably way more years than I should admit for how bad I am at hip hop, but I love hip hop and wish that I had started taking it earlier. And sometimes, uh, Micaiah whose class I take will say to me, you just have a lot of dance in you. And I always appreciate her saying that to me because sometimes she'll give out steps and I'll feel like I'm in 1973. (laughs) I'm doing, I'm doing a little jazz, you know, and, and because there's this whole history of me having done lots of jazz dance and kind of jazz relationship as it goes into, you know, early hip hop. And so I love hip hop, but, but there are times that I make decisions because of the way I move my body through both ballet, contact, modern, and so I find crossing over into all those other different types of dance has been very has been fun for me. And in my career, I always did that. Growing up, I was always asked to do. I even tap danced. I did ta- I did so many tap solos. I was the world's worst tap dancer, and I did more tap solos than most tap dancers I know. <laughs> but I could make it look like I knew how to tap dance. So I did a lot of different forms of dance and I find, you know, the rhythmic differences and are all really, really quite beautiful. And dance is just an amazing world. I'm so, I'm so glad that I've been in it my whole life.
0: Well, you sound very, very enthusiastic about that. That's for sure. It's uh, I can just hear the excitement in your voice. Can you tell me a little bit about your, uh, just the work, the work that you make starting, you know, in the early years, you know, what was driving you, number one, what drove you to want to make your own work and it was the subject matter driven was it a I want to see these kinds of movement style driven I mean what was the impetus behind it?
1: you know I, I felt like I felt like I didn't see a career for myself in dance the way that I saw dance around me and i uh so when I came here and I was dancing and people asked me to be in their dance, I kept ending up in more female driven dance companies, so like everything was always women were in it, and um we would dance and we would do different things and I think i I found that interesting, and I found the way that people made work interesting. I found having a company and having five dances, and then having your different dancers dance in different pieces. I found that whole model was very interesting. In that, I'd grown up in a ballet, in ballet, in the ballet world, but I also started seeing people doing these pieces that were just one long evening, like an evening-length work. Like contraband would be a company I would think of that would just come out and do this whole evening-length work. And so I started. Seeing so many different ways you could make work, I had no idea how to even begin to do that. So when I first started to make work, I, I, I literally just tried to make like, tried to make like what I thought work was. And early on, I realized I just knew what a trio was. And I knew how to do a, a canon. And I knew these little ideas and I could do solos. But I knew my, my com- composition. I knew through the compositions I'd been in. I've been in group pieces, I'd been in, you know, smaller trio dances, I'd been soloists, and so, but I didn't know anything about that. And so when I went to go make work at Mills, it was being taught in a very particular way. It's the early 90s. And everybody was a lot younger than me. And um, I was following all the rules because I grew up in a large, you know, grew up in a large family. I grew up Catholic. I grew up a dancer, and so I follow rules until I say the heck with it and go do what I want. And so I was following all the rules in graduate school, doing all the things they told me in every assignment. And and then one day I asked a teacher if I could not dance in my own work. They said, "Yeah, you don't have to be in your own work." And I, I said, "Oh, that's so much easier. If I can step out." And we were working on group forms, and I was learning how to like move groups of people with different um, choreographic mechanisms and stuff. And all of a sudden I was like, Oh, this is like, I was like a mad scientist. Then I started going and seeing artist friends of mine do work. And I would started seeing that, seeing the, the mechanism of choreography, what they were choosing to do and that there were all these choices. But Jamie, the biggest influence was always those years I spent in those theater schools in those theater schools. I learned through this very deep theater model and, I saw, so I saw, what I realized was I saw dance very similar the way that I saw theater. And I didn't understand why the kind of dance that I saw happening in those sets wasn't happening. I hope that makes sense. So if I was in a play, I didn't know why that play could have no words and that we couldn't have just done the whole play as movement. So that's what I was thinking, but I didn't know what that meant. And there were a lots of musicals that use more pedestrian kind of takeoffs on, on dancing, but those were musicals and that's a very particular type of dance. So I think that those years in that straight theater doing some assistant directing and just really kind of helped me have this eye. And so when I first started making work, I was making work with a very particular eye for setting up like a stage, like you would in a theater. And so I was going out and the stage was a very particular place for me but that I literally wanted it to like physically be there. So like if I put a chair on stage, that chair, the whole dance revolved around that chair. And that chair was very deeply developed in that dance. It wasn't a prop. It it was saying the place. And so that's kind of where I began. And then I used a wall and the wall was super important. It was so important that another artist asked me to put a dance in her concert. And when she came to the dress rehearsal, her lighting person refused to open the wall for me as a guest artist. And she walked into the tech and said, what are you doing? The, the whole dance she made is about the brick wall. And she made the guy open up the wall and light it for me. Um, uh, early instance of being pushed around by a techie. But so, so I was seeing these very particular, uh, place was very important to me, place. And I don't know if it's the chaos of growing up in a large family, but place was always important, building knowing where I could be. And so putting dances in these places. And so then I started suddenly bringing a lot of furniture because once I could define the set that my dance was happening in, I then wanted to define it even more. And so my husband started doing little things for me, um, building little things for me. And then I would talk him into letting me take our couch (laughs) to a dance studio, all of our furniture. And I kept building more dances that were using a lot of furniture and stuff, but I would do dance. We would do dance. We would just do dance that would have these furniture, and then eventually I built a twelve foot high staircase that was five feet in depth and four feet in width, and that we had to rehearse in a parking lot um, because it was too big to be in any space. And I lost my performance space because it was too big for the performance space. And eventually I performed it at Brady Street. But even with that, with that staircase. I went into deep research about staircases and dances that had happened on staircases. And I work with uh, some film people and made, I just, I got started getting into film and started taking film images and taking film images with my images. So film for me was really big because film and was was like, I, was, I would go in and take a film of somebody running down the stairs, carrying their child, and then take that piece of film and run it back and forth over and over again and make this little dance of this person jumping up and down throwing the kids in and out of their arms and what it was was a picture of a guy who was picking up his kids and running down the stairs but i would go in and manipulate the film and so then i started trying to make those kind of images kind of happen in a dance too and i would kind of bring those images along with the dance and they would influence each other and in the beginning i worked with different filmmakers um, very brave people who had lots of audio video equipment and would 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 spend hours with me. And I just kept bringing this all together, and I would put together sound that way as well. And I would do a lot of mixing of different soundscapes because I was wanting the sound to sound like like what it sounds like when you're in the world. So I didn't want I didn't want to make my music to my dances to a piece of music. I wanted there to be um, the same way I was setting the world that the dance is happening in. I was setting the soundscape behind it. So that was very interesting how that came about and how people interpreted that. I'm not, um, I'm not pushy enough as an artist that I think that I know what that sounds like before you've done that. Maybe that's not pushy, but the fun thing for me was finding someone and having them to respond to what they see me doing and then what, what, how they hear that happening. And I have a habit when I work and make my work, my dance is made with the music that happens simultaneously, because I usually start without the musician there because I've not got any material for them to see. I'll often, for the first few weeks, I'll just go in and play some other music.
0: And this is something
1: that drives, I think, my collaborators crazy. <laughs> but, because dancers get, touched, get get hooked to it really quickly. But I often will go in and just play with different types of music Um, just to throw in for the dancers that I'm, I'm, I'll say to them, Hey, that sounds like there's, there's a radio playing in the other room and you're in here doing the solo. Can you do this solo and have that radio playing from the other room affect you and not have the solo become a slave to the music you're dancing to right now? Because it's a different feeling to me. And so when I first start making work, I might just play any old music that I've been listening to and, or I might pull up an old concert that I got on, I did a. Piece of the warehouse, and I would play this old concert that was an NPR concert that my husband downloaded on my phone for me until I actually had the live music that they were creating for me. And in doing that, it kind of it kind of opens up for all the artists involved the idea that we're going to decide what this is. But if you want to work with an artist that's decided what this is before you've ever come in, then I'm not the artist to work with. If you want to work with me, we're going to decide this as we go along. And you and I, I need people to trust me that I will guide them through that.
0: And that's the problem. They themselves too.
1: Yeah, no, 100%. So I often say to artists, if I bring you into work with me, and this goes back to not making people take my dance classes. If I have brought you into work with me, if I've asked you to dance for me, it means that I want you in my dance. Please don't make me prove that over and over again as an artist because I'm going to be really busy doing a bunch of stuff. And I don't want to have to constantly, you know, stroke your ego. So when I bring people in, I tend to work with people who themselves probably will be have a stronger hand choreographically and maybe possibly our older choreographers who are just looking to be in a project or younger choreographers who are getting started. But I often work with stronger willed dancers who have a good choreographic sense. If people don't, then what I love for people to know when they work for me is that there will be dancers who will be the dancers who will... Um, who will kind of carry the language. They'll learn everybody else's language and put it on their body and they'll kind of build a bridge of the language. And there will be the dancers who will make up a lot of the pivotal language that will be in the dance. And they will will possibly be less flexible with other people's language. Like everybody's coming in with the way as being as a dancer. And I'm going to take full advantage of every possible creative ounce that people have. There will be no downsides to that for me. But if someone is a stronger creator of movement than somebody else who's better at learning other people's movement and doing something with it then those are two great talents that together will really will really make the dance a stronger piece of work but i but so it's for me is knowing my skill set what i'm strong at and wanting dancers to as well that might mean then that i have to be very open that people can come and work with me you asked a question about contemporary versus modern dance early on in the interview in the early mid 90s I had um, dancers who were um, working through kind of over ODC and several, there were several dancers who were probably targeting and maybe wanting to dance for ODC. And they were dancers that maybe were taking classes at the ODC and doing their workshops, but that hadn't happened for them. And so I was around and I was teaching. And so they kind of came into classes from class, class for me. And I seemed to be having some success that they felt was good enough for them to want to dance for me. I'm not sure what that means anymore. So they came and danced for me. Those people never made it to performances with me. And there are some of the funniest um, excuses that I ever got from people, because what it was is that they didn't want to dance for me because they had no, they could not see how what I was doing was ever going to end up in an organized idea on stage. And those people came and saw those dances and all of them came up to me and said, I did not see how that was going to happen. I go, right. And I'm so glad you quit because you're not seeing that was going to be in my way. I needed to have people that wanted to see this project executed the way it was. And so I have to have the ability to understand that for some people, the way I work will not work for them. That my ability to be in creative chaos like that and to not tell people exactly what to do. Somebody recently told me they're in a workshop and the teacher is teaching composition and they're an older dancer. And they were saying to me that the younger dancers in the workshop were not enjoying the workshop so much because the person was allowing them too much free reign and they wanted to be told what to do. And this older dancer was realizing, talking to me that what was going on was that it was just generationally a different place. And that these younger dancers were looking for, you know, what should I do to be a successful dancer? Tell me how to do the steps. And as an older dancer, she was loving the freedom. This choreographer was giving her to actually figure out what dance was for her.
0: Well, that certainly is a generational thing in a lot of places.
1: And it, and, it, and it might be generational in, in the sense that, you know, when you're younger, you, you know what you know when you're older, you know, you know what you know. And so you have to learn. So I do think that we have to learn as older artists, how we work with younger generations and younger generations and how they work with older generations of artists. We all have something to teach each other. It's, it can be a beautiful, 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 you know, m- melting of all those different talent levels. But I think it is something that we all have to be aware of.
0: Well, you know, I you and I are around the same age. And uh, I remember university as being a place of exploration and the the professors encouraging that. And you weren't thinking, well, gee, what is, uh, what's my job at the end of this? You were just trying to find out who you were.
1: Yeah, yeah, right.
0: What's going on with you. Whereas uh, now there is a real emphasis among the students of, gee, well, how's this going to lead me to a job?
1: Yes. So I've been mentoring for gosh, I don't know how many years, maybe 20 years now. And that has been a really interesting journey being a mentor during all of that, because I don't have I have the same answers to people from from me, the creator, but the world that they're in making arts has changed. And um, I find that I mentor mostly with people who work in universities. So they've all are teaching in university settings. And then I'm like the, um, you know, I'm the wingnut. (laughs) I'm the one who doesn't. I did teach it. I I taught over at Berkeley for a year. So I I did that for a year. I'm a very non-conformist person. And so I never even really wanted to be in university teaching. When I went to graduate school, I knew right away, I thought, oh, well, you're not going to get a graduate degree because then you're going to want to teach in university. And you're a little bit too rebellious to do what people tell you, Liz, you're going to have to like find your own career. And so I think what you're talking about now was also, also increased was that there were um, the professional programs that have come up that are really good for dancers, right? They're really good training programs, but they've upped the ante on what we were doing in universities. When I went to theater school, when I went to theater school, I went to a school in St. Louis that was part of a university. When I went to Chicago, I did not mean to do that. I was going to go to the Goodman School of Drama. That was a three-year professional program. And I wouldn't have gotten, would have just gotten a certificate. What happened to me was that DePaul University bought the Goodman School of Drama, literally, while I was auditioning for that school. They bought them out. That's how I ended up at DePaul University in Chicago. And that's how I ended up ever getting my, degree in psychology. So, it was a very happy accident for me that that theater school got bought out. I ended up in a university. So, what I did is that I did not stay through an arts education in the university setting because I found myself I you know, I don't know what it was Jamie, I found myself too rebellious or or that I could see that I could be rebellious and it was okay for me to walk away. I see the programs now are much they're stro- I think there's stronger programs. Um, I think the pre-professional programs that are in the bigger cities that are happening. Uh, there, was a, there was a summer, Radigan had a program for a while. I can't remember what it was called. Uh, the Conservatory, I think. But I think programs like that, they serve this um, younger professional dancer who's saying, what is my career gonna be? You and I, we, walked, we tripped out of the colleges that we went to and I tripped out really early and just went and got a degree. And then we just ended up going to major cities and being like, okay, well, where do you take a dance class? Who's doing shows? You know, okay. Dance Brigade's doing a show. They're doing a show about, you know, what's going on in Nicaragua. We're all going to go over to the East Bay and the, the BART train and, you know, see them smear fake blood against the screen and, and do this cointelproite dance. And it was like all this really cool stuff. It was, it was a lot of discovery and difference. And, and, you know, what, what, the change you're talking about now is it been a very big change in dance? And as a mentor, I sometimes feel like I will, um, I will, I will come to a point where I will no longer want to be a mentor anymore because we'll need younger people who are more down with what's going on in in the culture for younger dancers because it's because it's it's changed a lot and people are they're deeply 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 um, dedicated to their beliefs in the world and social justice and stuff. And so I think that has become a very strong movement within, within the arts. And I think it's really, it's really beautiful. But I, but I think that also this idea of this high level professionalism, that now I've done all this training, I need to have a job. It creates a really interesting, interesting place. And then add on top of that, Jamie, because we have to talk about the elephant in the room, what the pandemic did to the arts community. Yes. Right. Because so, so, so right now, as we, as I talk about all that, that's all interesting stuff. But what got put on top of that was that 15 months, that 15 months of of like what, what, what people did and, you know, pe- different people did different things. But that this whole community of people who train like zombies, <laughs> right, go to a dance class today, was stopped in their in their shoes. And a lot of people, you know, they worked at home. You saw amazing stuff people were doing at home. But it was like this this really changed. And as we've all come back in, who are we as the artists? A lot of older, I met with an older dancer recently and I realized that she was kind of bummed about a bunch of things. And so as we were talking, I was encouraging her to be a leader in both her Pilates community and in her dance community. And I said, seems to me like you need to be doing some leading and offering some of your knowledge. I said, if people don't want it, they won't take it, but you could offer that. I said, "Or the other options to be angry and feel like things are leaving you behind? I said, it makes more sense to me to like bring what I have to bring to it. And what we talked about, as I said to this person, I said, did you notice that after the pandemic that a lot of the people who you saw as the older dancers didn't come back? And the person said, yeah. And I said, yeah. And I said, you know why? I said, cause now we're the older dancers. And we sat there for a moment. Cause, cause I said, just so you know, we're the older dancers now. I said, so that's a change. I said, so maybe we're having coffee today because you want to process what that's like. these are, there's all these passages of time. So as an older artist, what I know is that I'm trying to have the grace to grow older with my career and still honor the things I love to do and still work with people, but also understanding the limitations and, and be someone who actually helps younger artists. So that's why mentoring has been so important to me is I want other people who come along. People used to ask me to lunch years ago, they go, this Roman. Can I take you to lunch? Sure. I go, why do you want to take me to lunch? I want to buy you lunch and pick your brain about your dance company. And I'd say, well, the first thing I'm going to advise you to do is don't take me to lunch. They'd say, why? I said, because you're going to take me to lunch and be pretty annoyed. They say, why? And I said, because I'm going to tell you that I actually teach and teach workshops and stuff to get money to make my projects that I don't actually write grants. And people would look at me and be like, what? And I go, yeah, I've limited myself greatly. I have. And it's a limitation that I was willing to take on. And so part of my journey, the last 30 years as to to figure out how to share my income with my family, which I have to bring my income to my family, but also then leave enough of it to be able to explore as an artist and be respectful and pay for artists around me. And so it's been an interesting journey. I've run my business and i run other people's businesses. I had a Pilates studio for a long time, but it's been a journey of like how I've made that happen. So as a mentor, and that if I can reach out to somebody out there who has, who has the talent, had the skills and stuff, but they can't figure out a way to do it. And if I can say to them that you may have to figure it out, that there isn't a way to do it. When I came up in the nineties, Jamie, there was this idea that you could, that there was a way to do things. And if I did these things this way, this was going to be, this was going to get me to a certain place. I saw, I saw the holes in that very early on. I came from a large family and every child is very different. And we all did the same. So I early on when I saw that model, I said, no, actually it won't. We're all gonna, we're all gonna go and do what it is we're supposed to do and what we want to do. And so in that way, if I can honor in my mentoring and find those artists who want to who want to take that on and find a way to to make their art, I can do that for them. I can't do it very much as far as how to get money and stuff like that, because that's a, you know, I can advise them to go to programs. I can write them, I write letters of recommendation for almost anybody. Who I work with, I will write letters for them. If they're willing to take that risk and go out there and try and be an artist. But I have a couple um things that I need from those people. If people want my support, they have to be they have to be this way. They have to either be like, I'm gonna throw my hat in the ring, Liz. I don't even know if I have a chance for doing but I so want to do this and I believe in myself and I'm an amazing artist and I'm going to throw myself in the ring there and I'm going to go for that. And would you write my letter of recommendation? And I'll be like, uh, and I might say, okay, but what if you don't get it? Well, I'll be fine, but I really want that. And then on the other end of it, you could be like, you know what? I'm not sure what to do right here with my career, but I'm really working hard and I just want to throw my hat in the ring and see where I stand with this. I may not be even qualified. I go, okay, I'll give you a letter. But if you come to me and you say, oh, Liz, things are so hard for me. I feel so bad about my for myself. I never get enough money. I never get the grants that I go for. Everybody gets everything but me. You know, I'm going to go for this grant. You write me a letter, and uh, but I'm going to complain the whole time. I'm going to say, no, I'm not going to help you out. So what I want to do is I want to find people like myself who just want to say, I want to go do my art. And then I'm going to try to help them the best I can, whatever whatever that may be. Mm -hmm. And that for me is what mentoring has been. It's less about people's aesthetic. I do not believe that it's my place to comment on people's aesthetic as much as it is to talk to people about what they tell me their goals are and to then see what they're giving me and did they accomplish the goals? Is this, is this what you wanted? So I'm more about mentoring the full artist.
0: Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's been a very, very interesting conversation we've had. I wish we had two hours more to talk, but I really appreciate the time that you've given me today and the perspective that you uh, you have on the art form and on your career. Uh, maybe we can do it again sometime. Maybe I can take you to lunch and just listen.
1: <laughs> I love it. I love it. I eat a lot too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for speaking. Thank up.
1: you, Jamie. This was lovely. It was, it was fun to talk. It's been, like I say, it's been a while coming out of the pandemic and also getting ready to start a new project and just thinking about why I do what I do.
0: Well, tell it's me about fun. that new project before we leave.
1: Uh, what I'm going to do, is I um, am going to do my my final house dance. Everyone says, sure, Liz. But this will be called Sunset Dances 3. I did one in 2017. I did one in 2019. And I had um, thought about doing like a little film festival thing at my home. And then talking with my collaborators decided that we would do one more installment of Sunset Dances. So it's a third dance. Um, be live music. Uh, the band will be a little bit bigger than last time two of the same artists, along with a, a rapper that they work with. Um, and then there will be 11 dancers. Pete Lewinowitz will be making films as he has done, which will be projected on the back of the house. And the audience will again see my home as a uh, setting for a dance. The two audiences as opposed to three. And I will not be traipsing people through the upstairs of my home like I did the last two projects. So they'll just be uh, seeing everything from the windows and from the backyard and from the, the garage itself. So that's my next project. I'm excited about it. It's a you know multi, multi generational cast, almost all new dancers. Um, I feel like I have to I have to train people to dance for me or, or or find people who want to dance for me and who want to stay with me. And so I have a couple returning dancers, but mostly I have new people who've been in and through my classes over the years, or people who I've met over the years. So I've always said, I would love to collaborate with you. So it's going to be, it's going to be fun. It's a uh, seven women and four men. And how many of those people actually come to the performance? I don't know, because in the end, some of them may come in and start working with me and think I'm nuts, but I'm ready to go.
0: <laughs> well, it sounds exciting. I can't wait, but thank you again. Liz. Thank you,
1: Jamie. You're a I You're appreciate your time.
0: And uh, I will see you at the studio.
1: You certainly will.
0: All right. Take care. You too. I know. Thank you for listening today. Mod Pod, the Museum of Dance podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other discerning streaming services. Remember to subscribe and rate us. Give us five stars because we are fabulous. Museum of Dance is a nonprofit organization. We work to preserve and contextualize the universal art of dance for the greater public through innovative exhibitions, diverse educational programs, and accessible archival collections. Explore what moves you at museumdance.org. You can sign up here for emails, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram.